But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So, will, so, it will be, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in a field, one will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding the mill, and one will be taken and one will be left. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night that the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. You may be seated. I know that we do have a lot of families that are traveling, other things going on, and so I uh, do want to pray for everyone who isn't here. We do have a thin sort of group this evening. That's all right. Still... Well, good. Actually, let's go ahead and pray quickly here. Heavenly Father, Lord, we are thankful for this time of year. We are, Lord, thankful for the time that we do get to spend in your word. Thank you for, uh, Lord, this body. Thank you for refuge. Lord, we do pray for those who are not here this evening. Lord, if they're traveling, Lord, keep them safe. If there are those who are unwell, Lord, we pray that you would uh, heal their bodies. And Lord, we do pray, Lord, that we would focus upon you, Lord, as we close out this year and look forward to the next. Lord, I pray that our focus would be firmly planted in that of the kingdom and the coming king. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. I don't know if many of you have been at a church where there have been five Advent messages, but you are here for the fifth. That's not normal, but that's normal for refuge to do something not normal. That's okay. Um, and just looking at this, I've, I've just been very excited about this particular message. Um, Advent is technically done. It was kind of finished yesterday. I don't know what, they, what to call this then. It is, I guess, the fifth Advent message, but this isn't really generally part of Advent, but whatever this is. Happy Boxing Day, I guess. Happy Boxing Day. Uh, but I'm, I'm excited for this, this time. I had been talking with my wife about this. This is that weird time of year where Advent's behind us, and we're kind of just waiting for a new year, and then we just kind of want to get back into normal. Maybe we're retrospective. Maybe we're looking to change some things, but this is sort of that moment in time where we have that. So this this week kind of feels like that. Um, but tonight, we're going to look at Matthew 24, specifically this idea of the promise of the return. Um, so Advent's behind us, and so we want to look to the next Advent, but not next Christmas. That's not what we're talking about. We're actually talking about the next actual Advent, the second Advent of Jesus, which uh, is, I guess, the last Advent that'll happen, because then he'll be here. There's no more coming of Jesus. He will be the arrived Jesus. And so that's what we're really looking forward to. And, and when we're taking a look here, this might seem odd, 
to have a talk about the second coming gemmed in right here, but it actually makes a lot of sense. Uh, and we're gonna kind of walk through a few of those things. So as we've been walking through, um, have you been enjoying the, the Advent book that was put together? I think it was great. I was really appreciative of that. Uh, but in walking through these different messages, we sort of had these different principles that were being highlighted, and we highlighted them on uh, in our gatherings here. So some principles for the first Advent. The first week, we talked about the past promises and the preparation. The second week, we talked about the remembrance and the future glory. Third, we talked about preparing the way for the coming of Christ. And then finally, we talked about the coming in flesh. So we talked about that last Sunday in preparation for what we celebrated yesterday. That our God became flesh, the incarnation. All of those principles are also a part of our look at the second advent, the next advent, the last advent. These principles also ring true. So just like in the first advent, we're waiting for all of the promises to be fulfilled. Once Jesus came, there's a realization that not all the promises that God had made were gonna be completely fulfilled then. So we're looking forward to all of those promises being fulfilled. Jesus is the example of the glory to come. He's gonna be bringing that glory with him. And so we remember the first advent in preparation for that coming of his glory. Just like John the Baptist prepared the way, we are to be the heralds of the coming of Jesus. So in, in many of those types of ways, we are fulfilling that now. And then lastly, we are to be making ready for the return of Jesus in the flesh. He came once in the flesh, he will come again in the flesh. So I want to spend just a few minutes looking at a few of these passages to kind of see that kind of expansive idea. So walk with me here. We're going to look at four specific passages, one sort of highlighting each one of these principles here. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to grab one of the ones in front of you there. Let's look at Genesis 3. You seem to always start there. Genesis is such a pivotal record for us in understanding not just who God is, sort of the introduction of God's character, but Genesis, what we see in the beginning, is key to understanding what's going to happen at the end. Looking at Genesis 3.15, and if you, don't have, if you don't want to use the Bible there, you can listen along. Genesis 3.15 says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. This is God talking to the serpent, pronouncing this, it's thought of as a curse, but it's also a promise. It's the first time where the gospel is specifically outlined that there is going to come a one who will take care of that sin problem. Now, in the first coming of Jesus, we see how uh, our Lord did fulfill the actual work of salvation. However, the totality of this promise is still to come. While Jesus did come, he came in the flesh, he fulfilled that role of being of the seed of the woman, he actually did perform a mighty work on the cross and in the grave. 
to become a victorious Lord. At the same time, we have not returned to Eden. It has not been completed as of yet. The first massive striking blow to the enemy rang true. We have victory. We are waiting for the fulfillment of all those promises. If you read through Revelation, it actually says we're waiting for the fullness of the Gentiles to be fulfilled before it is all said and done and Jesus returns to complete it. And so we see the fulfillment of the promises leading up to the first advent, and so we know, we can be confident that the promises made concerning the second advent will also be fulfilled in a similar way. Let's look at Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah 9 was the verse we looked at for a couple of weeks uh, in Advent this year, but in Isaiah 9 we have the very popular passage this prophecy that was concerning a child, and we can easily see here this is concerning Jesus. Let's look at Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of the peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And so we've, we've looked at this passage a few times in connection with the first advent. But if you look at this, the first advent only really represents that first portion there. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And kind of the rest of this is thematically accomplished. However, the actual fulfillment is looking forward to the second advent. Right now, if we were to go and ask someone, we say, who is really king of the world? How many people do you think would instinctively just say, well, of course, it's Jesus? I mean, his faithful would. We would say that, absolutely, because we have eyes to see, ears to hear. We know what's really going on. Certain areas of the world, I don't think they would really think that Jesus is actually sitting on the throne in a governmental sense. You can think of our brothers and sisters who are experiencing persecution, heavy oppression. I don't think that they would say, yes, Jesus is on the throne and I can see the evidence of his government now. I think a lot of this fulfillment in totality, in completeness, will happen later where it will be recognized by everyone that there is now peace on earth. We have, as his followers, access to these things. He is our king. But to see this fulfillment, to actually see a world at peace, man, that would be something. Think about it. A world actually at peace because we have a good king Ruling it. Some of these words here. Mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Are these true of Jesus? They are absolutely true of Jesus. Has every tongue confessed, every knee bowed as of yet? No. I love it. Thank you. No, it hasn't happened quite yet, but it will. And so we look forward 
to that promise being fulfilled. Thirdly, let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Looking at verse 16. We'll go 16 through 21 here, so if you're following along. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting the trespass against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God. I'm sorry, for Christ, comma. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so we see here in 2 Corinthians, Paul has written that what we are supposed to be doing right now, we have a specific job and a specific ministry. And this is, of course, in general, the church as a whole on the earth. And that is we have been reconciled to God. And so then he has given us the ministry of reconciliation. We are to be, just like in a government, you have ministers of certain categories. We are supposed to be the ministers of reconciliation. We're supposed to represent that on earth. And in fact, we have a title here given, which I think is really poignant and helps us to understand what we are supposed to be doing. It says here that we're supposed to be ambassadors for God. Now I'll ask you, uh, what are ambassadors supposed to do? It's mostly rhetorical. If you have a great answer, you can yell it out. But the role of an ambassador is you have someone from one nation, one country, one culture, and they then go and represent that kingdom, nation, people, group, tribe, whatever, uh, to another government, people, whatever. And so this ambassador is meant to represent. So if we're supposed to be ministers of reconciliation and we're supposed to be the ambassadors, what do the ambassadors do? They're supposed to represent the kingdom well, the uh, intentions of the kingdom, right? One other role, though. What does an ambassador do if there's potentially war? not a great relationship between two nations. They will continue to do all those things, right? Relay intention and let them know what's, what's sort of going on with, with this other nation. But also, there might be a warning, right? And so if the one kingdom is going to be coming and taking over this other kingdom, the ambassadors would often deliver these intentions and basically warn of this 
event, this war that was going to take place. So for us, we are ministers of the reconciliation, but our role as ambassadors is to also warn of the wrath to come. So think of this. So we in the world are to convey the intentions of the kingdom, and at the same time, sometimes in the same breath, to warn and to say, you know, there is a kingdom coming. It's coming, and when that king arrives, you can't resist. When that kingdom arrives, that kingdom will overtake this one. And so this is a warning. And sometimes I don't think we regard evangelism that way. But a lot of what we do is to warn of wrath, to warn that it's, it's coming. We, do, we don't want you to experience it. And so our king offers reconciliation. You don't have to stand opposed. When the king arrives, you can instead welcome him, and he will accept you. That's our role. That's what we do. This is really similar to what John the Baptist did at the first advent, the first coming of Jesus. The role of the prophet at that time was to announce all of these things, to make that path straight. Those people who heard the words of the prophet could not be without excuse at that point. They knew what was coming. That really should be our goal, is that if Jesus is coming, that our neighbors, our friends, our co-workers, our family members, that they would know, oh, it's time, I, I know of this time, and to instead welcome this coming king even if it's not going to happen in their lifetime, for them to turn to the king and regard him as king. That's really our role, right? That's what we should be doing. This fourth principle, and this is where we're going to spend the rest of our time, Matthew 24, our passage tonight. Matthew 24 and we'll go to that passage. So the passage we'll kind of uh, sort of drill down into is in verse 34. But we're going to notice a couple of things first. So this last principle, we need to be ready for his bodily return, for his actual return. Now, I know there are some people who would say his return is going to be spiritual. I don't know. No, I, I would say, I would teach that that's probably incorrect. There were t the actual coming of Jesus the first time, there were probably some who would have said, yeah, the Messiah could come, but it's going to come in this way or in this sort of uh, general idea. Maybe the Messiah is a group of people. Maybe, you know, there were a lot of ideas that were, that were probably falling, falling around people and they were picking them up and mixing them around at the first Advent. Well, the second one, yeah, there are a lot of people who would say, oh, we've got some different ideas here of what it's going to be like. But it's very difficult to read through Matthew 24 and 25 and not take away from that that this is going to be an actual physical return of a Messiah with actual real ramifications. Not just to the followers of Jesus, but also to the rest of the world that his return is going to be impactful in a 
bodily, physical type of way. So in Matthew 24, I want to highlight a couple of things. If, you, um, if you're interested at all in this second coming conversation, Matthew 24 and 25 are actually sort of a master class. This is Jesus responding to his disciples who have the question, hey, what's it going to be like at the end? Jesus is faithful to give details, but also give perspective, to give uh, general ideas and things to actually accomplish, things for us to do in the waiting. This is a great place to go to really get a good understanding of this second advent. Just a couple of principles that ring true throughout. So Matthew 24, verse 4. I'll start with verse 3 to get some context here. As he sat down at the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be, <clears throat> excuse me, and what will be the sign of his coming at the end of the age? You ever have a hiccup that's also a cough? That was, that's what happened. You heard it here. Um, what will be the sign of the end of the age? So this is the same type of question that we might have. His disciples had that too. And he waited until they were by themselves, just him and his disciples. And Jesus answered them. He said, see that no one leads you astray. That was the introduction. And honestly, it's one of the most important statements that anyone can make concerning the end. See to it that no one leads you astray. If Jesus told his disciples, hey, be careful that no one deceives you about these things. Don't get drawn into things. You, you really have to pay attention, right? How many different ways can you rephrase that? Don't let someone deceive you. Now, if that's the case, then don't you think this might be a pretty confusing time? If the very first thing that Jesus says is make sure you're not deceived. So what would follow would be, these are clarifying ideas that are going to help you identify not only the time that you're in, but also what you're supposed to do. Jesus gives this concept, but this first idea, don't be deceived, is extremely important for us to remember. Because he's telling his disciples, he's not just telling people out in the world to not be deceived. He's telling his actual disciples who care, who asked the question, who are looking, who are concerned, don't be deceived, which would mean we could probably apply that to ourselves. We have to recognize that the times that come towards the end, towards the second coming, are going to be confusing, difficult, maybe weird, and it would be easy to be deceived. And I only say that because you can have someone to, you know, come comes to you and they might teach, hey, I've got everything figured out. Here's my chart. Froop. There it is. The end. You're welcome. Someone who comes and says, I've got everything figured out and dialed in and put in its little place, and I drew it all up, and you can pay $12.95 and get that chart. Anyone who has any kind of element of those things, just remember, Jesus himself said, don't be deceived. So, you know, Take it with a grain of salt. I'm not saying that all those types of teachings are bad, but for the second coming, just remember that it's going to be really easy to be deceived. So someone who thinks they have it mapped out, isn't that easier for them to be deceived? Could be, just saying, quite possibly. 
we're going to look through this passage here, but there's two instances where another statement is made that I think is really important for us to keep in mind. Matthew 24, verse 44, which again, we will read in just a second here, go through. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And then again in chapter 25, verse 12, Jesus echoes the same concept and idea. But he answered, truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you do not know neither the day nor the hour. This idea that we're supposed to be watchful, that we're supposed to be looking. So first, don't be deceived, but then also you need to be watching looking attentive, looking at things to see what might be taking place. Those two principles kind of go hand in hand. First, be on guard, and then second, as you are on guard, be looking, right? That's kind of, it's kind of two sides of the same coin. These are important things to keep in mind as we look through some of these things. We need to pay attention. Looking at our passage that was read, We're just gonna highlight a few different things as we walk through this. Matthew 24, look at verse 36. Concerning the day or the hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. There are a lot of people who wanna make a big deal about the fact that Jesus doesn't know something. Uh, Jesus, at this point, when he's speaking these words, is a human on earth. I don't know that we can really hold on to that as this theological just bombshell that Jesus doesn't know something. I mean, he was a human speaking these words. It says the Father knows. So I don't think we need to be too concerned about that. At this point, I think Jesus might know. Could be. I think it's highly likely. Verse 37, for we... I'm sorry, for as uh, were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For in those days, before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered into the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Again, it highlights this principle. It's gonna be a surprise. You don't know when it's gonna happen. You have to watch. Now, I'm sure Noah had figured out when I'm done with the ark, could be at any point after that. Since God told me to build it, I've been faithfully building it, once it's done, could be at whatever point. There's uh, some examples given here of what it's gonna be like. So as the world, from their perspective, it says they were doing what? They were eating and drinking, marrying, giving in marriage. That's what was going on during the days of Noah. Are these all inherently evil? Are these bad? Are they? They aren't. These are all normal, very normal, extremely normal. Just normal things. Eating and drinking, marrying, giving, and marriage. It's so funny, side note. I'm standing off to the side because this is a side note. Um, There's so many times where eating and relationships are given to tell you this is normal life. Watch for it and you'll see it all over the place. 
but this idea that eating and drinking, marrying, giving marriage, people just going along with their lives, not worrying about anything. It's just, just normal. We're just living our life, and then all of a sudden, boom, starts to rain. The waters come and swept them away. It's this idea. No one's watching for it. That's kind of the point. It's just normal. We're just living our life. That's actually the opposite of what we're supposed to do. You have a couple examples. Two women are grinding at the mill. One is taken, one is left. I don't think this is actually talking about a rapture. I think this is actually just talking about when the judgment of God comes. It's normal life. One person's judged, one person's not. Verse 30, I'm sorry, 42 gives us this idea here. So therefore stay awake for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. We need to be watchful. We need to be looking. That's really the point is to be ready for his bodily return. So think of this principle. If the Lord, so so you could ask, how should we be living our life? If we are a part of the kingdom of God, how should we be living? If the Son of God returned tomorrow, how you, your family, your household lives, there should be as little change as possible. So, so think of it this way. Jesus shows up. Does that change how your family handles your food, your finances, your work? Should any of those things change? Our goal is to make it so when Jesus shows up and sets up his kingdom, we're already living like the kingdom's here. That's kind of the point. There should be as little upheaval in our own homes as possible because we're supposed to be living examples of the kingdom right now. So that's what we need to kind of concentrate on our daily life. How do we make it so that our household, our little pocket of the kingdom, our community, will have as little change as possible when the king of kings arrives? We just fold into this new governmental system of a king, a king on earth who judges righteously. We should just move over the next day and say, man, it's so great we've got this great king now. I know it's not going to look like that. It's not going to happen like that. But for ourselves, this is our goal. This is how it should be for us. As we're waiting for him, we live those principles of the kingdom now. The first advent was mysterious. There were promises given, prophecies delivered, but the true details of our Lord's coming were still unexpected. His mission to conquer death as a man and, put to, and to be put to death was a brilliant plan, a brilliant strategy. To come as a man with a body able to die meant that as a perfect man he could then offer his own righteousness to those who are lost in darkness of sin. This whole plan was amazing. The near entirety of the New Testament then is actually looking back at that fulfillment, the fulfillment of the promises of the first advent, and then calling us to live with a life focused on the reality of the second advent. While warning of the thing, uh, while in the New Testament, it warns us of all those things that would distract us from this particular mission. We must overcome the world, to live out that 
mission. So what does that mean to overcome? In Revelation chapters 2 and 3, Jesus himself, author's letters, has them written and sent to churches. And there's some common threads throughout some of these letters. And one of those is how Jesus addresses the faithful remnant within churches. He calls them to be overcomers, or as it might say in, in, you know, in ESV, it states it as to the ones who conquer, to the one who conquers. It's found in Revelation 2, verse 7, 11, 17, 26, and in chapters 3, uh, verse 5, 12, and verse 21. It's every single church has a promise given to the ones who conquer, to the overcomers. Because a promise of what they're going to be given in the kingdom. And this idea and this concept is, is that we are supposed to be those overcomers. We're supposed to live that kingdom life now, waiting for that second advent. We're supposed to be like the prophetess Anna, waiting for that Messiah to arrive, eagerly waiting for his arrival. And so for us, as far as overcoming, if we want to compare it to the first advent, the second advent, I mean, we just had Christmas. Right? We just celebrated that. Now, there are many things during this time that distract us from the real uh, celebration of Advent, right? We celebrate this first advent here. There's, there's the cult of claws, right? Some people call it this whole... Uh, materialistic sort of thing. I feel like for, especially for families, if we have kids, young kids, that's a big temptation and distraction away, right? And spend, sometimes we spend way too much time trying to draw our kids back from that than actually making Jesus really important, right? Materialism, nostalgia. Some of us are blinded by nostalgia and instead we'd rather worship this thing that we felt when we were young or this time where we had with our family, but we worship this nostalgia almost more than we worship Jesus during, during uh, the celebration of First Advent. Uh, family. Maybe for us it's a sense of pride. Out of pride we try to do all these things and make the celebration really great, or maybe for some of us we realize that we can't, and so there's a lot of envy for other families. There's a lot of things that distract us from really celebrating this First Advent of Jesus. There's a lot of things that distract us from living a life in light of the second Advent as well. Almost in the same regard, almost the same categories draw us away from preparing for the second Advent. 1 Peter chapter 4. I love this passage. If you ever forget what you're supposed to do, go here. First Peter chapter four, looking at verse seven. Peter's gonna give you a summation of what it means to live a life in the church, in the community of God. Just look at verse seven. First Peter chapter four says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, dot, dot, dot. So the perspective that Peter gives us, he says that we're supposed to recognize that the end is coming. The culmination of all things is at hand. Therefore, 
this is how you live. So in light of that, that, that should be the driving force behind what we do, what we say, how we live our lives. So, so what does that look like? As Francis Schaeffer would said, how then, would say, how then shall we, shall we live? I think there are a few things to key in on. We, we could spend a whole lot of time on this, but we're going to hit some really key things. And I'm sure in conversations afterwards, you guys could think of even more. Highlight just a few. Number one, how do we treat our resources as the representatives of God on earth waiting for the coming of the kingdom? How do we handle our own resources? I say resources generally. Some people would say money, but I would say money, time, everything you have, all our possessions, what we have. Those things that we have, they come from the Lord. They are the Lord's, and he distributes them amongst his body. 2 Corinthians, it talks a lot about this concept where um, the, for those of us in the church who have a lot, our responsibility is to give like the Father. For those of us who are in the church who, who lack, our responsibility is to be humble like the Son and to receive so that at the end of the day, there's really nothing left over. We're all taking care of each other. It's a beautiful picture what that looks like. Perspective for us, just reality-wise, it's so difficult sometimes, you could say, we have to be responsible with the things that God has given us, but sometimes we think responsible means being stingy. We end up being Scrooge. No, we account for every penny, and we can't let anything, you know, we have to give an account. Be generous with what you have, because you wouldn't have it if the God, if the God of, of heaven hadn't given it to you, and so give it. It's very easy if someone says, oh man, I just really need to borrow the, a, can I borrow your car? It's very easy for us to look at our car and to say, you know, God wants me to be responsible for this, so you should really learn responsibility and get your own car. That's just a creative way to say no, because you don't want to let someone use your car. Instead, if we look at the car and say, that's the Lord's car that he's given me, who am I to hold back what's been given? Of course, right? Now I'd say, asterisk, with uh, wisdom, right? But I think we should be able to parse our own heart to know when we're not being generous because we're being wise and not being generous because we're just kind of being selfish or wanting to keep our things. Our resources should be open. We should be generous with those things because it'd be easy for the Lord to just add to us to add to them. And so if he has added to us, it may be our responsibility to, to give. We need to keep that in mind. But in light of that, when the kingdom comes, do we need all these things that we've gathered and collected and kept safe? We won't need them anymore, right? And sometimes you just have to have that perspective in order to maybe cut through that first barrier of materialism. Boom, once we punch through and look at things for reality, a lot of times it's, lot e it's easier to be wise with our things once we've done that. Secondarily, how do we treat the world? How do we treat all those around us? And I think we've kind of talked a little bit about that before, but we're to warn those who are around us in a caring way, in a loving way, in a, uh, in a way that is within the context of our relationship. We should do those things. Does that mean we stand on the corner of the sign with a megaphone? Maybe, I don't know, that's not what I feel called to do. If the Lord calls you to do it, you better do it. But if not, 
Don't feel like you have to do that. Or I yelled on the street corner for an hour so then I can do whatever I want with my other time. Doesn't work like that. Right? Don't use your moments of evangelism as a way for you to not have to actually share the rest of your life. We're called to live the kingdom now, and that means with those around us. How are we supposed to treat the body, the community that we're in, the, the, the church that we're a part of, this assembly? How are we supposed to do that? We're to touch on that a little bit as well. We're supposed to treat each other like family. If we're sitting at the dinner table, very rarely do we all just come with our own plate and just eat whatever we brought and then go on our merry way. Normally, we, if you go to an Italian restaurant, you sit down and you say, we're going to have it family style. What's that mean? If you're going to eat family style, what, Britain? You share. They just bring a big bowl and you just all kind of eat from the same bowl. That's kind of how we should live. If we lack, it's because the Lord wants to teach us something, but we don't have to fear the fact that we lack because the Lord has given to someone else to give to us if necessary. How many of you have been blessed by someone in the church at any point in time in your Christian walk where you could point back to say, that was the Lord using someone in the church to minister to us? I have stories. I have, <laughs> I have random envelopes full of money with exact amounts. It was exactly what I needed for a bill. Like very strange things. We say, like, That's a very odd kind of story to have happen. These sorts of things happen because the church is the church. We're supposed to live this way. That's, what, that's God's economy. God knows that he can give to certain people and say, these people are generous, they're wise, and they're thoughtful. The Lord will add to them that they might add to others. Live in grace. These are some of the principles that God has. And, and just because you lack doesn't mean you lack because God doesn't love you, God doesn't trust you. Sometimes he wants you to trust him. That's what he's looking for. God, and uh, Paul gives a warning. He says, those of you who are rich, eh, someday you won't be. And you'll be depending on someone else. So while you have, give. And for those of you who don't have right now, don't worry. Don't be anxious because the Lord is going to take care of you. You just wait and trust. Then we also have the principle that we're supposed to be active. We're not supposed to be lazy, so we're supposed to work. And so we're supposed to be doing what we can with what we have, and the Lord is going to make sure that his church is able to care for itself and at the same time that we might be able to share with others. That's really God's economy. That's how that works. Again, we're supposed to live out the kingdom here while we're waiting for the kingdom to arrive. This is really living fancy word, in an eschatological way. This is an eschatological lifestyle, looking at the end and living our life now in light of the end. Or another way to put it, this is us living in light of eternity. Right? This is really what we should be doing. This is how we can be looking forward to that second advent, just like those Jews who are in that area were looking forward to the first just like those Gentiles who travel to find him, we're looking forward to the first in response to God's promises. We need to live in the same manner. Heavenly Father, Lord, we, Lord, we are humbled, Lord, to think that this message that was given thousands of years ago in the Gospels, in your word, 
Lord, still ring true for us. What an amazing thing to be a part of your family. Lord, not just your family in regard to the current church that we're a part of, but Lord, just being a part of your family throughout time, Lord, part of your plan. Lord, it's such a humbling thing to recognize that the message is given to an encouragement to an early church we can also look at and see those things apply to us. Lord, I pray that we would be those who live out the principles of the kingdom, Lord, that we're looking forward to your return. Lord, I pray that as we move towards a, um, the turning of a calendar, a new year coming, Lord, that we would look retrospectively over the year to see, Lord, where we have, Lord, been victorious, the areas that we should work on, and Lord, in light of that, that we would have an honest conversation with you, maybe individually, maybe as a married couple, maybe as a, as a family, Lord, that we might plan and make decisions make, and, and lay down living principles for us to be able to say, we're going to live as though we're a part of the kingdom so that when the kingdom arrives, we can welcome the king with a good conscience. And so Lord, I pray that we live this way, that we would share Lord, the gospel, the, the wrath that is coming, Lord, that many might be saved, Lord, through our lives, through the words that we use, through the lifestyle that we have, Lord, we just look forward to your coming. I pray that we would be like the examples given in Matthew 25, like the five virgins that are ready for your return, Lord, preparing for it, and not like the other five that just fall asleep. Lord, I pray that we would be awake, that we would be active, Lord, that we might be ready to live out the kingdom now. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.